God, would you enable us to see beautiful things in your word? Would you enable us to see afresh your son Jesus? And would you give us eyes to see ourselves in fresh ways? God, come and do work among us, we pray, by your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So uh, this morning is my favorite Sunday of the year. I love, love, love the Sunday that we fall back an hour. And, uh, you know, I think this is better than Easter. It's just you guys look so much happier because you have a little bit more sleep. And I was thinking, you know, this week we had All Saints Day. And, of course, there's a variety of different holy days on the church calendar, Easter, Christmas. And I think we should add this as another holy day because when I get an extra hour of sleep, I feel a little bit more holy, don't you? And so, um, yeah, I'm, uh, so today we're actually going to be entering into uh, the last of the stories that we've been looking at in the life of Elijah. And over the next couple weeks is kind of an addendum. Uh, I'm going to uh, tag on a couple stories about Elijah's successor, whose name is Elisha. And I know it's a little confusing because the names are so familiar, right? I mean, so uh, similar. But uh, so that's what we'll be doing the next couple of weeks. But today we are going to be entering into the very last of the stories about Elijah. And, uh, but I do want to begin today not by talking about Elijah, but I want to start today by, by sharing a story that comes from the life of Jesus. Now, um, there's this little odd story in the Gospel of Luke, and it's at a really critical juncture in the life of Jesus. And he has just set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so he's going to go into the city where he will be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, and he will be taken and stripped naked and beaten, and he will be crucified there in Jerusalem. And so where we pick up the story, Jesus has now set his face to go all the way to Jerusalem. But to get to Jerusalem, he's got to go through a village of Samaria. And so when he has disciples on their journey, go through this village in Samaria. And as you did back then, he sends out his disciples to go and to find some lodgings where they can stay, you know. And uh, in the ancient world, the hotels were not really a thing. You know, you would go into a town and you would be dependent upon the hospitality of uh, the people in that town in order to give you a bed and a place to, to, you know, place to sleep, place to eat. And so... um, So Jesus sends his disciples to go find them a place to sleep, and um, nobody lets them stay with them. And the disciples are just livid. I mean, they have been watching Jesus heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and give sight to the blind. They are like, this is the Messiah, the very chosen one of God, and you Samaritans will not give us a place to sleep. And so they are just livid. And, uh, and of course, these disciples, you know, they, they've, they've only been walking with Jesus now for a couple of years, and they're in a process of learning and growth. You know, they've not yet arrived. And so, you know, after they've been rejected by the Samaritans, they go back and they find Jesus. And this is where we pick up the story. It says, and when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, I love this, they, they asked him, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? 
which you gotta just love the chutzpah of these disciples. Earlier in the narrative, they tried to cast out some demons and they failed. And now they think that they are gonna command the heavens and call fire down. You're just like, what gave them that idea that they could do this? But here they are. Jesus, you know, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? And the response of Jesus is fascinating. It says, Jesus turned and he rebuked them. In, in some other manuscripts, uh, we don't know whether or not this is actually in the original text, but in some of the manuscripts, it, it captures a phrase, and I think this captures it just about right. It says, uh, what, what Jesus said to them, he says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. He's saying, look, I am not going into Jerusalem in order to rally an army and to bring down fire and brimstone down on all of my enemies. I have not come to destroy lives. I have come to save lives. Now, tuck this story away because we'll come back to it later. Now, let's get into Elijah, shall we? Yeah? It's a little bit of an abrupt turn, but you guys are with me. So when we pick up our story today, Elijah's chief nemesis, his, his arch enemy, Ahab, who was the puppet king with Jezebel, who was pulling the strings, has now died. And it's a couple years on, and now Ahab's son, Ahaziah, has taken the throne. And Ahaziah, as it turns out, is out uh, in his kingly palace, and he's up on the top floor, and he is probably wandering about on the roof of the palace doing what kings did and admiring his great uh, kingdom that he presides over, and while he is now kind of like, like thinking about his own greatness and the greatness of his kingdom, he takes a bad step, and he ends up stepping upon a lattice that he winds up falling through and he injures himself. And look at what the text says. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and he lay sick. Now, we don't know what kind of injuries he sustained. We don't know if he cracked his skull or maybe broke his back or he got some big open wound and it was infected and now he's sick and he's dying. But we don't know exactly what it was, but we know this, it was serious and he's desperate. And when you're in the ancient world, you can't just take somebody off to ER. And so he did what you did in the ancient world and he calls for help from one of the gods. Look what it says. Uh, he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. And no doubt he wants more than just information whether or not he's gonna recover. He wants Baalzebub to act strong on his behalf and to heal him. Now, among all of the pagan nations surrounding them, this made sense. This is just what you did. But Ahaziah is supposed to be the king of Israel. And the king of Israel is supposed to lead the people of Israel to worship the true and living God of Israel. But instead of turning to God, here Ahaziah is turning to Baalzebub. And so, you know, way off somewhere, we don't know where, an angel tips off Elijah as to what Ahaziah has done, that he sent off some messengers to go and to inquire of Baalzebub. 
And look what it says. The messenger of the Lord said to Elisha the Tishbite, arise and go meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from this bed which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so God gives a message to Elijah to give to the messengers who are going to Baalzebub. And he goes and he delivers this message. And look what happens next. The messengers return to the king and they said to him, uh, or he said to them, he's like, what are you doing here? You know, the king is still sick in bed. He's desperate. He wants these guys to go out and inquire of Baalzebub. And uh, he's like, why are you back so soon? Like, what's going on? And uh, they said to him, well, uh, uh, you see, king, there came a man to meet us, and he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone, but you shall surely die. Now, the king, of course, doesn't like this message at all. So he's like, who, who, who said that? Who gave you that message? He said, what kind of man was it that came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, well, he was a bit of a wild man. Not, not the kind of guy you'd want to bring home to mom and dad. Not the kind of guy who gets on well in polite society. No, this was a guy who wore hairy camel's garments and a, and a leather belt uh, about his waist. And Ahaziah hears this, and he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Is it just, I just like that. He's just like, oh, no, not Elijah. He's like, it's Elijah the Tishbite. And he says, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of this obnoxious, this troublemaking prophet once and for all. I'm gonna complete the work my dad Ahab should have done. And so what does he do? He, he rallies the troops and he gathers together a garrison of 50 troops to go and to apprehend and to silence and to no doubt kill the fiery prophet. And look what happens. The king sent him a captain of 50 men with his 50, and he went to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill. I just imagine Elijah calmly sitting in lotus position on this grassy hill, praying to God in deep meditation. And then he opens his eyes, and there before him is this garrison of 50 troops, and the captain is yelling out to him, O man of God, the king says, I have come with a royal decree, prophet. And he tersely says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I'm a man of God, you, you say I'm a man of God. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now, after this disturbing and embarrassing defeat, word get, gets back to the king. And what does the king do? Well, the king tries it again. Look what it says. And the king sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. You notice he ratchets it up a notch. He says, look, this 
is the royal decree. The king has spoken, prophet. Come down here. And he responds again. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now, what does the king do? Well, the reckless king does, often, does what world leaders, what politicians who control the machinery of warfare have often done. He sends his troops recklessly back into harm's way. And look what it says. And again, the king sent a captain of 50, or a third 50 and his 50, and the third captain of 50 went and came up, and this time the story changes. He now falls on his knees before Elijah, and he entreats him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. And so he falls down before the prophet and he says, have mercy on me. And the prophet does. Says, then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, he says, look, go down with him and do not be afraid of him. And he arose and he went down and uh, he goes to the king. So now he gets an audience with the king, and now he stands and delivers, and he speaks truth to power, and he delivers this message to the king. And listen to what he says. Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. And Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. And the story ends. Now what on earth are we modern 21st century people supposed to learn from a story like that. This is a fascinating, interesting, kind of intriguing story. I was, uh, you know, oftentimes when I'm preparing for a sermon, I'll go out and I'll try to listen to a few other sermons on a text I'm preaching. And I tried to find another sermon on this text. I couldn't find one other sermon on this text. And uh, I, I think it's, it's a little bit of an odd and a strange text. I think commentators, I think preachers, I think a lot of us modern people, we don't know what to do with an odd story that has as its very center uh, a prophet who seems to be able to command fire from heaven. And we wonder what we're supposed to do with this. And so on the one hand, the story is very odd uh, because of the, the nature of Elijah's power in the story. And of course, at least one point we are supposed to make from this is, is, look, don't mess with the prophet of God. Or maybe we should put it like this, don't mess with the prophetic word of God. Or we could put it like this, when the true and living God speaks, when the voice that called heaven and earth into being, when the voice before whose presence heaven and earth tremble, 
when the voice of the one before whose face the angelic beings do not cease crying out day and night, holy, 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 when that holy, terrible voice speaks, our response ought to be reverence and awe and in some sense, fear. You know, the one God says, to whom I will show favor is the one who is lowly and humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. And so at least we are supposed to learn this from the oddness of this story is, is we are to be those who stand in awe of the word of God and who stand in attention to the voice of God and who respond with trust and with obedience and with orienting our full selves and life around this God who has spoken in this world, in his word, and in his son, Jesus. And so on the one hand, the story is kind of odd, but I think there is something to learn from the oddness. But on the other hand, the story in many ways is pretty clear and simple. And there's actually a very simple, clear point that's being made in this story. You know, commentators will say that uh, the story hinges, it kind of hangs on a question, a question that, that sort of the whole narrative revolves around. And the question is raised three times in the text. It's there in the beginning, and it's there in the middle, and it's there at the end. And it's the same question that is raised at the very center of the message that Elijah speaks to the king. And, and it's a question that for me, as I read the text, just lingered in my imagination. And as I, as I reflected on it, began to do some work in my own heart. And it's the question that I want to put before you this morning, and I want us to reflect on. And this is the question. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub? Is there a God in Israel or not? And if there is, then what are you doing going to Baalzebub? You know, the question is kind of cheeky because uh, uh, the commentators also point out, you know, those who know Hebrew point out that uh, it's interesting because there is, um, there's kind of a play on words in the text. Uh, there's, there, there's, there's, this, there's a, a title, Baalzebul, which means Baal the prince Baal the prince, the lord of all the princes is how it would be translated. And uh, a lot of commentators say actually what's happening is the author is being a little bit cheeky because what he does is he's distorting the name Baal Zebul and he's changing the final consonant from uh, the Hebrew Lamed uh, to the Hebrew Bet, which is the last letter, to Beelzebub, which can be translated the lord of the flies. And in some ways, he's poking a little bit of fun, and he's saying, look, you have turned from the God of Israel, the creator of all things, the God who brought into being the heavens and the earth, the God of the covenant, the God who parted the sea, the God who heard the pained cries of his people in Egypt and set his people free, the God of promise who brought him into the land. You have turned away from the God of Israel, and you have turned to the Lord of the flies? the Lord who presides only over death and darkness and that which is disgusting, you have turned from the true and living God to this? And I think this question that he raises 
to Ahaziah is intended to be raised to all of the early readers in the ancient world who were tempted to turn to other things other than God to find their own healing and salvation. And I think this same question is intended to come to us today and to get under our skin and to start asking us some questions about what it is that we turn to in our moments of crisis. You know, suffering and pain can be a lot like uh, the reef that stood out front of a hotel we stayed at in Kauai. You know, when we first arrived, we looked out and the ocean just looked beautiful. There were waves out there. It looked like it would be just the place I wanted to surf. And then the tide drops and what it reveals, what it exposes is a dry, sharp, deadly reef. And you know, when the bottom falls out on your life, and suffering and trials happen, when you fall through the lattice and land on your back and are in a period of crisis, oftentimes it starts to reveal what's beneath the surface, what you really trust in, what you're really looking to. And this happens with Ahaziah. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you have turned to Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, don't misunderstand the question. You know, of course, there are times in our life, you're in physical pain and you turn to a doctor for help. Or maybe your, your marriage is falling apart and you turn to a counselor for help. Or, or maybe you're, you're in a period of darkness and depression or you're fraught with anxiety and you go to a therapist for help. Or, or maybe, you know, you're just, you're, you're, you're completely behind in your schooling and uh, you don't know how you're going to, and so you turn to a friend or maybe a, 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 a tutor for help. In, in periods of, of, of pain and suffering and difficulty, we often turn to other humans for help. And that's, of course, not what he's getting at. We are created to be interdependent people. You need other people in your life. But I think what the question is really getting at is something deeper and more profound, and it's this. What is it underneath all of the human resources, underneath all of the created resources that you turn to, what is the thing underneath all of the other things that you look to fundamentally and ultimately for your salvation? And if it is not the God of Israel, if it is not the creator of all things, then you need to let this question get under your skin. Or we could put it like this. What, what the question is meant to expose are the idols in our heart. Those things that we turn to as ultimate and significant things. You know, what is an idol anyway? We talked about this a few weeks ago and we're gonna revisit it again because I believe this issue of idolatry is so relevant. It's so important to, to so many of us. And maybe you're a church-going person, maybe you're not a church-going person. I, I think you need to think hard and long about this issue of idolatry. What is an idol anyway? Listen, when you take a finite, limited, and sometimes a good thing, but then you make it into an ultimate thing, you have created an idol. When you take a finite, a good thing, a created thing, it could be a variety of different things. It might be family or a spouse or a friend. It might be uh, something like beauty or wealth 
or fame or success. And, and you take these things that in and of them, themselves, they're good things, but then you exalt them to a place of ultimacy where you start to think, think, if I don't have this thing, my life is going to fall apart. And so oftentimes we do this, we take good things, created things, finite things, and we make it into an ultimate thing. And that is what an idol is. An idol is anything more important to you and to your well-being than God. And what about you? Do you have anything that is more important to you, to your well-being, to your wholeness in life than God? And if you do, then it doesn't matter what you profess to believe on Sunday. It doesn't matter the creeds you recite. It doesn't matter how orthodox your belief is. If you do, you know, the thing that you're really trusting in, the, the God that is really at the center and the foundation of your life is not the true and living God. It is that thing. An idol is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth, leaving, worth living. You know, of course, there, there are things in our life, good things, that if you lose it, you know, you, you're going to have hardship and you're going to feel sad and low. And so if you value your health and then you get a terrible diagnosis, you're going to be sad. But if you've built your identity and your life along having a healthy body and being able to look a certain way, you are going to be absolutely crushed and you're going to want to throw yourself under, off a bridge. You know, of course, um, being successful, achieving good grades, getting into a great university, those are good things. And if you've really been working hard and, and you know, studying for the SAT and working hard on those grades and, and, and you don't get into the school that you wanted to get into, if it's just a good thing in your life, then you're going to be sad and dis- of course you will. But if it's an ultimate thing, if it's an idolatrous thing, you're going to feel like, I can't go on anymore in life. And it's because you've taken a finite thing and you've given it almost a mythic importance in your life, a religious significance in your life. You know, Tim Keller, uh, he, he says, look, if you want to know what your idols are, he says, don't simply ask the question, who do I worship? Because, you know, if you're, if you're a good church-going person, you're almost always going to answer with the good Sunday school answer, which is what? Jesus, right? He says, don't look at, 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 at don't, don't ask yourself that question, you know, what do I worship? He says, you're almost always going to give a Sunday school answer. And he says, instead, he says, look at your nightmares. What is it that if it happened in your life, you feel like, I could not go on anymore. And it may be that if, if, if you examine your nightmares and you look below the surface, you might find that your life is actually being built upon. The very foundation of your life is not Christ, it's not God, it is this other thing. Or we could put it like this, with a nice, a beautiful, lovely piece of artwork. Listen, your real God is what you build your life on. It is where you find your identity, your meaning, your significance. And of course, we modern people, we don't have Baalzebub or Baalzebal. You know, we don't have uh, Zeus and Hermes. You know, we modern people, we're way too sophisticated for that. 
But do we have gods in our culture? Do we have idols in our culture? Do we have those things in our culture that we build our life and our identity on? And we say, if we want to find real meaning and real significance, if I'm going to be okay in life, then I need this thing. And that is an idol. That's your real God. Maybe a couple examples, you know, maybe some of you have seen the movie Chariots of Fire years ago. If you haven't, you know, some of you, this movie came out long before you were born. It's worth a watch. But uh, there's a character in there named Harold Abrams, and his whole life is built upon his career as a runner. And there's at one point in, in the movie where he says this, he says, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. Speaking of being out on the track field, he's running in the Olympics, and everything in his life depends on how he does in the Olympics. I wonder for you what your life depends upon. For Harold Abrams, it was, I, I need to win. And he says this, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again, and I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? What is it that you need to justify your whole existence? That is an idol. Or maybe, you know, you're not into Chariots of Fire, but there was another movie in the 80s, 1979, I think, actually. The original Rocky, the best Rocky, maybe the only good Rocky. But there's a great scene where... uh, uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone, you know, Rocky is talking with his girlfriend, Adrian, the night before his big fight with Creed, you know, Apollo Creed. And, uh, and, and he starts reflecting. He says, like, I, I need to go the distance. And he says, because if I can go that distance, if I can stay in the ring and, and fight him all the way to the very end, he says, if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. What is it that you need in your life to know that you're not just another bum from the neighborhood? You look below the surface and that may be your God. And the real question is, is when the bottom falls out and when you lose that thing you think you need, the thing you've been standing on for your salvation, the thing that you have been depending upon, like you realize how fragile that thing is when it breaks apart for you and you just feel like I am falling. And so he raises this question to us. He wants us to reflect, is it because there is no God in Israel, that there is not a God who has defeated sin and death and darkness in Jesus, that there is not a God who has become incarnate among us? Is it because there is no God who is creator of heaven and earth that we have looked to beauty and success and achievement and family and any number of things in our life to feel like we are okay. And he's saying, look, do you see? There is something so much better and more substantial that you can build your identity on, that you can find your worth in, that you can actually have salvation in, there is something way, way, way more important than those things you have been looking to. He says it is God. It is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, let me just press this a little bit deeper. I know that at least in this story, if this is all you could know about God, you might think, well, this is a little bit of a shaky foundation to build my life on too. 
because if I upset him, he might just have fire cast down from heaven and consume me. You know, what kind of God is revealed in this story anyway? A God who is flippant, it seems. You know, who's willing just to cast down fire, you know? And, and, and what, are, what are we to make of the God we meet in this story? Listen, there, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of ways we could think about that issue. But, but I, I, wanna, I wanna just point this out. Listen, when you think about how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, how this story of Elijah calling down fire from heaven relates to Jesus telling his disciples, you shouldn't call down fire from heaven because I haven't come to destroy but to save. When you think about these two stories, the story of Elijah and then the story of Jesus that we opened with, don't think of these as two stories that bear equal weight because they don't. Listen, Elijah does not relate to Jesus like some counterbalance. You know, there's Elijah and then there's Jesus. Elijah relates to Jesus like this. Elijah is a prophet from God sent to ultimately be one of the early pointers that's ultimately gonna take us to God's fullest disclosure of his true self in Jesus. You know, in various times and in various ways, God spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the fullest disclosure of God's true self. Jesus is the most of God you will ever hope to see. Elijah is only a pointer, but Jesus is the point. And when you look at Jesus and you look at this story, what do you see about the God who has made us, the God who has called us into being? That this is not only a God who, yes, we need to stand in honor and tremble at his word. This is the God who has come among us in Jesus. This is the fire who has taken on flesh and walked among us, not so that he can command fire upon his enemies, but ultimately so that he might go into Jerusalem and take the fire of God's judgment into himself, in your place, in your stead, for your sake, bearing in his own death your sin and your guilt and your shame. Here is love incarnate among us bringing to a final and a complete end all of our sin, bearing in himself, drinking to the full dregs the cup of God-forsakenness so that he might bring it to an end so that ultimately when God deals with us, it is not dealing with us as those who simply are the recipients of fire that's cast down on us from heaven, but we can be those who can receive the smile of God by grace receiving God's love into our lives. And he says, look, look, here is what you can build your life on. That infinite ocean of existence and being and holiness and love has become flesh and walked among us and he has given himself fully and unreservedly and completely for us. You can build your life on his love. You can wrap your identity on his love and this is a foundation in your life that if you are standing upon, you can experience all kinds of loss. You can be shaken because, 
you know, the, the beauty you long for, the success you're shooting for, the university you wanted to get into, the, the marriage you prayed wouldn't fall apart. The stuff can happen in your life and it will, it will shake you, but you will never ultimately be finally shaken because your life is standing upon this rock and this foundation. And I just wonder as I close, are you building your life Are you grounding your identity on this solid foundation? Of course, all of us need to constantly have this question lingering in our minds. You know, is it because there is no God in Israel that I keep looking to this other thing to be my salvation? You know, I don't really know where all of you are at today, but I want to close just by sharing this. Yesterday, I had a dear friend call me, and he, he, he just said, you know, he said, Josh, he said, the last 24 hours, he says, I don't know what's been going on in my life, but something's been shaking inside of me. And he said, I, 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 I want to know, like, how do I become a Christian? What does that look like? What does that mean? And and it struck me just as I was having this conversation, I'm like, God is at work in this guy's life. And so we talked and then I led him in prayer and it was just a really beautiful, beautiful moment. And there may be a couple of you today and you don't know what's been going on in your life these last 24 hours or 24 days, but something has been moving inside of you. And, and you just feel like, I have never surrendered to God. I have never surrendered my life to this love. I have never let go and, and really, and, and I've been building my life on all kinds of other foundations and they're flimsy and they are not secure and I need to turn away from that and I need to build my life on God's love in Jesus. And you're like, how do I do that? Listen, the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's as simple as you falling on your knees, maybe when you walk out of this place and just saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I've been building my life on the wrong things. I want to build my life on your love. I want to orient myself around you. I want to find my identity in you, God. I need you and surrender and let go. And maybe you're here right now and you're ready to do that. And I just want to pause and I just want to invite invite us as we move into a a time of prayer. I just want to invite you just uh, to close your eyes, bow your heads, and, and maybe... Maybe you are here today and you're in that place and you're just like, I need to surrender and I need to begin again with God. I want to invite you just to quiet your heart and in the quiet of your heart, just say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Say, God, I've built my life on the wrong things. And I want to build my life on your son, Jesus. And you know, maybe you are a follower of Jesus. 
in here and maybe you're like me and you find yourself maybe for hours or maybe days or maybe weeks or sometimes months in your life building your life on something other than God, looking to something other than God in Christ to be your salvation. And would you just pause and just surrender afresh to Jesus again? Say, Jesus, I surrender these idols. And I wanna trust in your love. I wanna build my life and my identity on you. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. We pray, God, that you would root out those places in our life where we are looking to other things than you, temporal things, created things, finite things, to play the role that only you, the uncreated, infinite, transcendent God of creation can fill. God, would you help us to build our lives on your love? And we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together as we close out our service, singing the words of this song that really are a confession of what we will build our lives on. Let's sing this together.